Podcast Movies Edition, presented by Phil Hinton. Hello and welcome to the Movies Podcast for April. Coming up, we're going to discuss the new Keanu Reeves documentary, Side by Side, which looks at the changing face of filmmaking from film to digital. Joining us tonight is Matt Jarvis. Good evening, Matt. Good evening. And Steve Withers. Greetings and salutations. <laughs> so let's kick off uh, Keanu Reeves' new documentary. When somebody told me Keanu Reeves was doing a documentary, um, I laughed and thought, yeah, okay, whatever. But actually, having now seen Side by Side, uh, which is his look at filmmaking and the transition from uh, the old-fashioned 35mm and uh, 65mm film to digital filmmaking... It's a really interesting concept. It's current. It's happening in the industry right now. And I have to say, Keanu did an excellent job, Steve, of not only explaining the subject to your everyman. I mean, obviously, we have a, a bit of an interest in this, so we're a little bit, perhaps a little bit more up to speed with it. But I, I thought the whole presentation was, was excellent in terms of getting the technical issues over. And it was also really balanced. Yeah, it was, Phil. I mean, you know, like you, I had a bit of trepidation going into it because you think Keanu Reeves, you know, Bill, was he Bill or Ted? I can't remember. Uh, Ted, um, you know, but as you say, when you actually watch it, he he, he actually um, has some very interesting questions. It's it's very balanced in terms of it's both people who are pro-film uh, and those that are pro-digital capture. Um, you know, he came across not only that, but he, when he was doing the interview, he never once sort of made a point of, you know, I'm a film star or I'm in front of the camera, unless one of the interviewees mentioned it to him. He always just played the interviewer. And and I thought, actually, he was really good. He seemed, you know, well prepared, knowledgeable, interested. Um, he managed to interview just about everyone I could think of, with the notable exception of two two major names, I think. One was Steven Spielberg, uh, who, of course, still only shoots on film and one of the, the few sort of holdouts, I guess, in terms of, of using film. The other major one being um, Christopher Nolan, who was in the documentary. And the other major um, sort of voice missing, I guess, from my perspective, would have been Peter Jackson. Now, maybe this was because um, well, so he obviously shot some of the interviews in Europe and some of them in the US. Maybe New Zealand was a little bit too far away for him. Um, but again, it would have been interesting to get Jackson's um, take on digital catch-up because obviously he's made the move to digital with The Hobbit, and not just uh, digital, but he's obviously made the extra move of using 48 frames a second, which has become quite controversial in the last sort of six months. Um, but otherwise, though, he had everyone in there. He had David Fincher, you know, he had George Lucas. And, and watching it, you you, you realise, whatever you might think of about the Star Wars prequels and that sort of stuff, how incredibly influential George Lucas has been in terms of filmmaking. The actual uh, craft of filmmaking has been totally revolutionised by Lucas over the last 20 years. Um, maybe 30 years, uh, and, and you, know, you sort of forget just how much his companies have pioneered from you know non-linear editing, digital editing, uh, digital capture, um, you know, uh, digital compositing. All that stuff was pretty much pioneered through ILM and through uh, other other subsidiaries of his, up to and including Pixar, who of course originally were a subsidiary of Lucasfilm. 
So, uh, yeah, I, th- I thought it was an absolutely fascinating documentary. And like you said, Phil, one thing they did really well was explaining relatively complex uh, subjects in very easy terms that anyone could understand. Mark, where do you sit uh, when it comes to uh, the whole film versus digital side of things? Because you have a, a, a an interest in this area. I do very much, yes. I, I Part of my job, in fact, is uh, is quite a lot of videography rather than filmography or cinematography. And I think the move to digital is in- inevitable, apart from anything else, from a cost point of view. It's significantly cheaper to shoot digitally, um, and you can see exactly what, you, what you're going to get the second that you uh, have shot it, even using uh, video assist on film cameras. You're never quite sure if you've actually captured the essence of the shot, and that was always the skill of a cinematographer, was to be able to say, yeah, when we look at those rushes tomorrow, trust me, it's going to be lit correctly. You're going to see that detail. You're going to see that highlighting around the actor. Whereas with digital now, I think some of that cinematographer's art is starting to be lost. The director looks at the shot on a LCD monitor and says, yeah, that looks great. Let's go for it. And, you know, the director of photography, he's saying, well, no, hang on a sec. I haven't finished lighting this shot yet. I need another hour to get this looking like I want it to look like. And the director's saying, no, forget it. I'm happy. Let's, let's just go with that. So that side kind of concerns me a bit. And I know that there was a number of people in the documentary actually make that point as well that they feel that the director of photography, his his art, if you like, is suffering a little bit. But whether it's suffering or just changing, I don't know. I, I suppose it's, it's almost analogous to um, the change that happened in the recording industry a few years ago, or gosh, nearly 20 years ago now, moving from analogue to digital. Back then with analogue tape, you could kind of, you know, crunch the levels a little bit and get a little bit of extra onto the tape and you just got this really nice sort of hysteresis compression. When you move to digital, you couldn't do that. If you overloaded the signal, that's it. It was overloaded. It's nasty and I think the same as with, with uh, film as well if you oversaturate a shot you get that slight halo and you can get away with a little bit of oversaturation before it's ruined whereas if you're going with digital if it's overexposed it's overexposed and it looks it same going the other way as well when you're underexposing on uh, on film you can often make that up without too much noise digital yes you've got the extra stops of latitude so you can get away with being a little bit darker but if you've taken it too far that's it forget it it's, it's just crushed into blackness there's just nothing there at all so so for me i think it is it's a new art i think it's an interesting one i can kind of see both sides of it but i but bearing in mind that all films now are digitally edited i really don't see that it's going to be a battle that, that anybody's going to win in the long term well for me it's um it, it's one of these things that you know, working in the industry that we work in, which is technology, Steve, and things always move on. Things are always progressing. Um, we're always looking for the next big thing, uh, whether that be a tablet or whether that be a TV or whether that be a resolution jump in terms of images and so on. Yet we also find that we have our preferences when it comes to film. Um, and you touched on it when you were talking about Peter Jackson. And it was something that really wasn't mentioned in this documentary, and that was the higher frame rates. Um, and now that that can be done digitally, um, and there are advantages to digital filmmaking, obviously 3D being a big one as well, because, you know, in the past you had to try and get two big cameras sitting side by side. You could never get the correct distance, ocular distance, uh, whereas with digital cameras you can shine them through a mirror, you can have them as close as possible and so on. And with frame rates, you can really up the frame rate. Yet when that happened like film snobs that we are we understand the digital side of things and we like a lot of the movies that have been shot digitally but when they up to frame rate we became snobs and said oh don't do that don't touch that True. i think um Sorry, no, I was just going to say was, there's, there's an interesting outtake to the film that uh, James Cameron makes where he says he's really trying to create reality. And if somebody, and I, and I think that's probably what Peter Jackson also did on The Hobbit, 
yes, you're looking at a fantasy scene, but what you're seeing on the screen is precisely what he was seeing on set. And he and Cameron feels that the only way you can do that is through 3D. And I think Peter Jackson feels quite similar that by using a higher frame rate, you're getting closer to that reality. That that if you like putting the uh, the audience on that set, so what they're seeing is real. Whereas other other directors and DOPs would absolutely hate that, and they want to sort of they want to put them into the unreal film environment. And I think that's almost the difference that you're getting with 3D and the higher frame rate. Do you want reality or do you want art? Yeah, but you just um, hit, hit, hit the nail on the head there, Matt, because you said it's you know it's a fantasy film. The Hobbit's a fantasy. You know, it's not reality. And you know, film generally, you know, maybe with the exception, I guess, of documentaries, film isn't reality. No matter how realistic the film might pertain to be, it's never reality. It's always, you know, uh, a, a, an artifice. It's, it's it's an artificial creation, and and that's the point of it. That's that's the, where the art comes into it, really. So the Hobbit's uh, a fantasy. If you go into Pandora and Avatar 2 and 3, again, it's a complete fabricated world. You can't really call it reality. And the problem I had with 48 Frames a Second was you were seeing too much of the set. You were seeing too much of this, of, of everything that was on, you know, the, the props. They didn't look real anymore. They looked like, if you've ever been on a film set, you know how fake everything looks until you see it through the lens of the camera. And you think what you were what you were actually seeing was you were seeing that fakeness rather than the fantasy yeah, world. Yeah, totally. Was it was totally yeah. it was like standing on the film set rather than being immersed in the film itself. But I um, think that's I think that's exactly what they're trying to achieve, isn't it? And now I'm not suggesting that they're necessarily succeeding at this point, but I but I think both of them they I think both of those directors they they want you to see what they see on that set, be that right or wrong, I guess. True. Um, interestingly, I I recently watched The Hobbit on Blu-ray in, at 1080p24. 2D, uh, and found it an immensely more enjoyable film than I did when I saw it at the cinema at 48 frames a second. I was no longer being distracted by what I thought was just a hideous, uh, smooth, overly smooth motion, and actually managed to just enjoy the movie. And it felt, for the first time, it actually felt like uh, like a, it was part of the Lord of the Rings universe rather than something completely different. And the effects didn't look so fake. I mean, they, they looked far more integrated into the film. It just looked like a much more enjoyable uh better fantasy movie um and I'm, I'm pretty adamant now that when we get around to the second part in december i'm going to go and see it in 2d at 24 frames a second because i, I want to actually enjoy the movie and not be distracted by what I, I can only personally feel is unnecessary experimentation on the part of jackson when um when i wish he just got on and made the, the film really <laughs> i mean why do you think we prefer 24 frames per second though this is the thing i mean it was a fairly arbitrary value that came in when sound came along because you needed a consistent speed to get soundtracks to work it's you know back at that stage films were being made at anything between you know sort of as low as 10 or 12 frames per second up to 30 frames per second some of them what why do you think everybody accepts and likes that 24 frames well, um, I guess partly it's. I mean, you could you could argue that it's partly because we're used to it. I mean, after a hundred years, that that's the look of film, and that's what what it looks like. When you, when you look at uh, video games or uh, TVs using motion flow or stuff that's been shot at a higher frame, it just doesn't look the same as film because it isn't. Um, now, you could say that you're just being old-fashioned. What, what, don't, what, why why hold on to 24 frames? As you say, it was an arbitrary. Well, not exactly arbitrary, but that, that was the lowest frame rate they could get away with to record sound onto film at, at the back in the late 20s, early 30s. Now. By the same token, when you watch side by side, they talk about the development of digital capture. And obviously, they, they went back to the, the early pioneers who were using digital cameras, basically nothing more than digital camcorders in, the, say, the, in the 90s. And they looked, frankly, awful. I mean, maybe they were going for a certain aesthetic when they did that, but it looked like crappy video. You even get to the late 1990s, 2000, when Lucas shot Star Wars Episode Two, um, Attack of the Clones. And 
even then, digital capture was, they, they say in the documentary, and Sony admit, we really are, we weren't ready for prime time at that point. He was pushing the envelope. And I think that film is going to massively suffer uh, in years to come because it's going to look rubbish. Um, I think you're right. Uh, and I think. Well, and then Roger, Robert, Robert Rodriguez, who, who made Sin City, among many other things, now he's a big proponent of digital since he saw Lucas's cameras back in 2000. He's been using them ever since. And, and his argument is yes, okay, it wasn't great to start with but it's just going to get better and better and better and ultimately, you know, better than film. But what's interesting is as they showed these films that have been shot digitally, going, you know, chronologically through them from the 90s up to the most recent stuff like Social Network and The Girl with Dragon Tattoo, which Fincher shot, um, they look more and more like film. <laughs> what they're trying to do is not shoot digitally and make a digital movie. They're trying to find a way of shooting digitally but make it look like film. So if that's the case, I have no issue whatsoever with using 24 frames a second. <laughs> yeah, you have to say that there is this uh, aesthetic look to film, and it's and it's one of these really difficult things to put your finger on. I guess some of it is is motion, um, the motion of the frame, uh, the motion of movement within the frame. Um, it gives it this that certain certain look. Definitely grain. I mean, obviously, you, you shoot on on different stocks to get different looks. Uh, when it comes to green, but that, that's an integral part of the film because it is on the film. And it's funny that you say that, Steve, about uh, films like The Social Network. I thought that looked absolutely beautiful. It was shot in the red one, uh, which is a digital 4K camera, yet it looked like film and it looked absolutely stunning because the care had been taken to light it properly, to move the camera properly. It was at 24 frames. Um, and obviously in post, they have added in uh, a little bit of green to give it that look, but it, it looked fantastic. Yeah, it did. Uh, I mean, I remember watching that on Blu-ray and thinking that 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 was beautiful. And, and I think Finch is one of the few directors that's using digital, but is using it in, in a in a way to to you know, you know to create movies that do at least have a, a film-like quality to them. I mean, watching The Hobbit again, uh, shot on the Red Epic, um, at a 5K resolution, but you, the, the image was just too clean. There was no grain at all. It was just too clean. Um, too, too much depth of field, too uh, too, too well lit. Obviously, because they were shooting in 3D as well. But when you watched it in 2D, it just didn't have the same feel. Uh, it looked more like Lord of the Rings than than it had at the cinema, but it still didn't quite look like it because obviously Lord of the Rings was shot on, 30, on Super 35, you know, and then that, that's blown up. So when you're looking at the scope image, there is a, a lot of grain in there. It's got it's got slightly slightly more um you know uh, not quite dirty, but you know more rough and ready look to it. Uh, a lot of it was shot handheld. It was shot on the run around New Zealand in ten over ten years ago. It had a, a far more interesting aesthetic to it, I think, than the pristine, clean, digitally captured Hobbit, which just looks too too tidy, too clean, too you know too um, antiseptic almost. Um, I kind and, of know what you're saying there, yeah. I think I think and I think you hit the nail on the head when you said about the depth of field and I think this is the problem it is so difficult to to film in 3D and still make it work in 2D because you're using different tricks to to bring the the watcher into the video uh, into the film and the bits that you want them to concentrate on if you if you're shooting in 2D then you're using depth of field you're using um, shadow and light and those sort of tricks the things that have been going on for 100 years and funnily enough because of that people are now quite good at as soon as you move into 3D 
be it digital or, you know, if you really are a bit of a masochist and do it on 35 mil, um, then immediately your depth of field has to increase because because 3D only really works when a lot more of the, of the shot is in focus. That is why cartoons work so well in 3D because depth of field really isn't an issue. Your, your back scene is almost always in focus. Or it might be slightly soft, but it's always there. And everything else is just done in layers. And trying to do that on a real set and make that work in 2D and 3D, I don't think anybody's achieved yet. I've yet to see a film that's not a compromise one way or the other. I answered to your question, Phil, about what makes film, what, 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 how do we define the, the appeal of film? They actually explain it quite well in the documentary because they explain how uh, movies are, are captured. You know, in other words, light goes down the lens, it hits the piece of negative and the silver nitro particles react to the light. And no piece of film will react exactly the same way as another piece of film. They are, by the very nature, all utterly unique. Whereas digital capture, you're using a sensor with a, 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 you know, a, a defined number of pixels. And it will always capture the same scene exactly the same way. So I think that that's part of the appeal of film, that film is, you know, a physical, you know, photochemical process where it's never going to be exactly. You could shoot the same scene, two different cameras with, you know, with film in them and they would look, they could look completely different. And, and I think that's part of the, obviously that is the downside to it because you've got to watch the rushes the next day and you come in and you, I think mean, David Finch was saying he saw some shots on seven by um was shot by Darius Conji and he said that was it just took his breath away other times he was going what the hell is that so there is a downside to it but I think Martin Scorsese made the point that even if you've got a great big Panasonic TV you know <laughs> plasma on the set you have to watch those scenes again on a big big screen to really make sure that everything works and you know in terms of performance in terms of framing in terms of focus everything um so, yes, it's inevitable that we will move to, to, to completely 100% digital capture. It's just, a, it's just a question of when the final holdouts like Spielberg or, or Nolan stop making films because it's just, you know, it's just easier. And it's, as, as Matt pointed out, it's just cheaper, ultimately. I mean, film, film is difficult, isn't it? I mean, film, you've got to cut the negative, you've got editing. You obviously, you know, you can digitally edit it after you've shot it. But, you know, colour timing, you've only got such, such limited control in terms of colour timing physical film as opposed to doing it in digital mean digital realm. Yeah, totally. And I, I think that is going to be the killer. Because I think what will happen eventually is we will lose those skills. Uh, and now, I mean, try getting an 8mm or even a 16mm film developed in a hurry in the UK. It's going to be extremely difficult to do. The number of places that have the ability still to process those films is is going down, you know, all, almost by the month. So, you know, we're, we're soon going to be left with one or two places worldwide that are able to process this film. And when the old boys that are doing that die, that'll be it, really. Um and it, and it will. I think it will be a sad loss, but I think it is inevitable. You think now you can get a 2K cinema uh, digital camera, something like the the Black Magic design, and it's a few thousand dollars. It's nothing. I mean, admittedly, the lenses that stick on the front of it are going to be five or six thousand dollars a time, but the actual imager chip and the camera is now just just so cheap. And it, you stick a hard drive in the back of it, you pull it out, you stick it in your Mac, and you're editing. It's as simple as that. And I can't see why. I can't see very many directors being able to hold on to film more than a few years. I know they were saying that. In fact, I think uh, I think it might be George Lucas or somebody. He says again in one of the outtakes, he said he was told 10 years ago that film would die out in a year. It hasn't. So maybe it's got a little bit more life in it yet. But I really can't see it last, lasting beyond the next few years. For me, the, the only people that, that seem to really be holding out for for film were your classic cinematographers and, and directors of photography. And the one thing that they kept coming back to, Matt, and this is something that certainly you and I will understand in terms of latitude, with film you have uh, 
an enormous expanse of latitude and that's basically um, everything from the blackest black to the whitest white um, and being able to see the detail in, in each step as, as you go up through that process. And this is where digital, up until very recently uh, with the Ari Alexa and the RED cameras, really suffered because because it was video, you it would shut off at a certain level of black and it would shut off a certain level in the highlights. Yeah, absolutely. And as you say, it's only really with Red Epic and some of the more, more recent cameras that they've got over that. Um, certainly, even the, the current Sony, the Alta cameras, I've been using some of those actually to shoot some some commercial work and using a very good DOP who worked on Tamara Drew. And he's been struggling with it, quite honestly. And and it's whether we do we go back and reshoot that up on red? Well, hopefully not, because it's going to cost us a fortune. But as you say, it is, it is down to what you're used to and and working with the steps of latitude. But certainly a modern camera like Red Epic or even the new little Blackmagic one, they're, they're probably a couple of stops above and beyond what you can get on even the um, the T-shaped emulsion film now. So it's it's kind of caught it up and overtaken it, unfortunately. I guess before leaving the cameras, we have to talk about Panavision. Um, they have been supplying uh, the filmmaking, certainly Hollywood filmmaking, for, um, well, since the beginning of time, basically. And... It was quite interesting to see that that they no longer um, are producing new film cameras. Um, they are not making any others. The the ones that they have in stock, they'll they'll obviously be they'll carry on with them for rentals and so on until such a time as there's no call for them. But I guess that's the first nail in the coffin, really. If nobody's making film cameras anymore. Yeah, that being said, unless there's going to be a huge new development and making them better, there's, there's very little point. I watched something that was quite tr- interesting a few years ago uh, where they were transferring digital back onto 35mm for prints and they were using a 1930s camera because they were doing it frame at a time and they said, you know, this is absolutely fine for doing this. There's, there's not been any major advances in, in field cameras, certainly not in the last 10 years. So those that are out there in the rental market, they're going to continue forever. You know, they're, they're, So long as spare parts are available for them. And again, that's fairly limited on what you're actually going to need on those cameras it's not as if we're suddenly going to be you know strapping more digital widgets to it or or making that camera obsolete so long as you can still get the film frankly that camera's still going to work i guess that's the problem getting hold of the film and getting it developed which you've already mentioned matt is where it's going to where the chain is going to break down i think ultimately yeah, I think so. I think particularly, I'm not so sure in in the states in the in the in the short to mid term. I, I think if Spielberg still wants to make on film, there's still going to be somebody who's going to develop it. But but give it a few years. If he moves and you're just left with sort of the art house films, it's going to be more of an issue. If you think what's happened with um, LPs in the UK with vinyl, there's still pressing plants and there's still the ability to to cut those LPs because it's a relatively simple process. Developing film, as we all know, is not, and it takes a skill. It's not something you can you can learn from a book. You've really got to be taught it from somebody. You really do need to do that apprenticeship. And if that's not happening, it will die out. So I guess the, the, the point that you've just made there is, is that, you know, when it comes to film, when it comes to the developing, the processing, everything else, uh, it, it's a dying art. Obviously, Kodak went into bankruptcy 12 months ago. Um, so that's one line of uh, that side of the business that, that's clearly failing because of the expense. And this brings us on to the interesting point. And, and don't get me wrong, I'm not putting myself in uh, the position of a filmmaker here. But obviously, I produce videos. I can remember back to the days with VHS and all the rest of it, absolutely terrible capture systems, the workload with everything involved with that. And, it, and the only quality uh, format was to shoot on film and have it developed and colour timed and so on. But we're now in a digital age where 
you know, I've got a, a camera that costs a few thousand pounds. Um, it shoots onto SD cards. It shoots at full uh, HD resolution. Um, I can change the frame rate if I want to change the frame rate. Capture everything I want to capture. Yeah, the lenses are expensive, but um, you can get everything onto that SD card. Then put it into your Mac or your PC. Uh, open up your editing system, whatever you use, Adobe or uh, Final Cut or whatever. Uh, you can start creating, you can open up DaVinci Resolve, you can colour correct it so it's the same palette as, as Hollywood use. It's democratised the whole process of making films. Now, that can go one way or the other. I mean, you, it might be harder to find the good stuff because there's so much crap out there because everybody's making uh, short films or, or feature films or, or video productions. But at the same time, it's putting the tools in the hands of um, new talent and who knows where it's going to go. It's interesting because again, the same thing, of course, happened in the in the music making and the in the studio market quite a few years ago. When home studios came along, we moved from little port, you know, Yamaha Porter Studios, little Tascam machines with with cassette, which you can make a quick demo on, to having eight track, and then obviously now you can have sixty four channels sitting on your laptop, and you can you can make the album at home. Why do studios still exist? Because everyone came to realise really quite quickly that you still need those skills and you still need that ability and that professionalism to make a, a good movie or a good film. And I, and I think the same uh, to make a good song. These days, I think we're going to find the same with video. We're going to go, it's, it's going to kind of go through where we are with still photography and Instagram and this sort of thing where people take a picture and they put a bit of colouring on it and suddenly think they're a professional photographer. People are going to see through that really quite rapidly. And I think the same will be, uh, will happen with film. We're still going to get good films and, and bad films and you're still going to need those professional facilities and those professionals, those directors of photographers, uh, directors of photography who know what they're doing to produce great movies. Nobody's going to go out and shoot the next blockbuster on a on a two thousand dollar camera um that just straight out of art school they're going to need that experience there to to produce a good result and the same the same with editing you know you you look at some i was i was watching an old film the other day i was watching the full monty and looking at the editing on that and it's absolutely spot on you can almost count the beats and i'm not talking about the parts of the film where it's set to music i'm talking about the parts of the film where there's just things happening on screen and the way it's cut together is absolutely spot on and and that's what makes that film flow so nicely and sometimes that's the difference again between a great film and a poor film i think it's quite funny that we're talking about how much cheaper digital capture and digital editing and the whole digital workflow you know how much cheaper it is than traditional filmmaking with with film and yet production budgets are actually skyrocketing in the in the professional film world you know i mean now a uh, I remember back in 1980 when Heaven's Gate tanked. It cost $35 million. And someone said at the time, I think it might have been William Goldberg, said one day people look back and call that a cheapie. And that is the case now. A $35 million budget now is, is small, is low budget. Um, you know, your average tentpole movie at the summer, $200 million at least. $200 million. I mean, or two Titanics. <laughs> Titanic was $200 million, but that was an astronomical <laughs> amount in 1997. But, you know, even, even uh, I think... Uh, Pirates of the Caribbean, the third one at World's End, that budget was $300 million. I mean, the, the numbers are just gobsmacking. You're thinking, well, where does all that money go? <laughs> well, well, so well, I think well, that's quite strange. Well, that, that, that's a good point, though. Where does that money go? Because um, if you're talking about shooting a film digitally, I mean, even Lord of the Rings, right? He ordered, how many was it? 42 red epics? 48 uh, red epics, yeah. 48 red epics, right. So they're, what, $60,000 $60, a piece once you dress them up, say $100,000 uh, per camera. Um, that's a that, that's a fair chunk of money. 
Um, you then got your lighting and your technicians and stuff on set and your set dressers and all the rest of it. But you're not saying that that's 300 millions worth. You've got well, that would even count, Phil, because those cameras would be offset against, that wouldn't be set against production costs because he's obviously going to keep them and use them for other films too. I don't think it would even, even that wouldn't be an issue. Right. So you, you've got to ask, where does the money go? I mean, obviously, the, the first thing is a talent. I mean, your talent, uh, what some people get paid for, for making films is, is ridiculous. Um, but the talent, the, the draw the, the audience in, so you have to pay that. Your special effects and everything else. But, but one thing I've been noticing recently, reading the trade magazines and stuff online, is that um, the digital side of things, the, the effects companies and stuff, they're all folding, they're all going bankrupt. I mean, Or outsourcing I, to other countries now. So, so as well. you know... It, it makes you think, where does all that money go when you're making a film? Because some of it just doesn't add up. I mean, if these, these effects houses are, are going bust, are they not charging enough? Well, it's that's it. They're getting squeezed. They're getting squeezed by the producers and saying, we're not going to pay this much for the effects. Again, well, we physically can't do it for that much money. Now, I, I, just, I just find it incredible that it's been in the last... Because, I mean, when Titanic came out, that was, that was an astronomical amount of money for a movie, $200 million. It was ridiculous. But, I mean, to be fair to Cameron, he built the Titanic. <laughs> Didn't he? The set was gigantic. He built an entire studio to go around it. Was the story at but, the time not it would have been cheaper to have built the real boat? Uh, it was about <laughs> similar costs. Actually. It was, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah. Yeah. Well, that was not quite as funny as Lou Gray when he made uh, Race the Titanic, and he said it would have been cheaper to lower the Atlantic. <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah, I mean, they've ballooned in the last 10 years. And you kind of have to wonder, like you say, Phil, why is that? Why have production costs just gone through the roof in the last 10 to 15 years in a way that they, you know, they were pretty stable for a long time? I know you could say part of it's inflation, but inflation hasn't been that been that high in the last, since 2008. Inflation in most of the major economies has been in sort of 2 2-3%. So it's not an inflationary factor. I think one thing you've got to look at um, is if you have a look at some of the making of, makings of a lot of films, there's an awful lot more pre-visualisation goes on now. So they've almost made the movie once in in sort of, if you like, stop frame animation or, you know, sort of using some of these computer tools before they've, they've even sat down and, and filmed a shot. In the in the old days, the DOP sat down with the director, out came the notebook and everything was hand-drawn. These days, that's not enough. The, the producers want to see what it's going to look like. So there's a hell of a lot of, of this sort of pre-visualisation stuff that goes on. Again, millions of dollars worth. There's, there's people I know in the industry and that's all they do. They know that their work will never be seen on the big screen. All right, it might make it onto a, a Blu-ray's extra at some point but all they're actually doing is drawing stuff filming stuff and voicing stuff so that the producers have got an idea what it's going to look like and that's that's i mean admittedly it's probably still fairly small uh, beans but it could easily be five million dollars on a movie but there's there's issues all the way down the food chain as well i was in london the other week they're, they're filming um, some uh, um footage for a new muppets movie at the moment uh, around uh, lincoln's Inn's fields and you look at the the quality of the if you like the um, all the Winnie Bagos and everything that's going in there, and it's the same kit that's been rolled out for the last fifteen or so years. It's not being replaced. The guys that are running it are saying that the money's simply not there at the moment. There's a recession apparently in the film industry. You wouldn't know from the budgets, but everybody from sort of the real bottom end of the uh, of the food chain is saying that the, the money simply isn't there, and it's and it seems to be going into the higher end of it. I think it's going, as you say, into the talent. I think a lot of it's going into the promotion of it as well, and certainly quite a lot of it is going into the into the post production side of it. Well, you say promotion. I mean, a two hundred million dollar budget won't include the marketing costs. That'll be another hundred million. Uh, I mean, someone somewhere is making a lot of money. <laughs> That's all I can say. I mean, most films don't make their budget back. I mean, when you're talking about two hundred million budgets, they can't. They have to make half a billion 
just to just to break even. Um, staggering, really. I and mean, that's one of the reasons why talent gets paid so much money, because if you can guarantee an opening weekend, that's everything. If you don't open on Friday night now in the States, you're dead. That's it. End of story. You're out of the cinemas by the following week. You've literally got one day or most of the weekend to, 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 to make, you know, to make an impact. Otherwise, you're finished. Um, like this, this um, the, two weeks ago, Steve Carell's new comedy opened up. The, um, the wonderful Burt Wonderstone, um, incredible, the incredible Burt Wonderstone, uh, bombed. Him, Jim Carrey, Steve Buscemi in it, bombed. Uh, one weekend gone, and you're finished. Uh, you know, and that's it's become pretty cutthroat in that sense. I guess they've been saying this since the beginning of of Hollywood and so on. But I mean, can that business model continue? Can you continue spending that type of money? And and. I guess it's the old argument we always come back to, Steve, on these podcasts, and that is that where is the originality um, in Hollywood? It seems to be that they have to back a franchise, they have to back a name, they have to back a star um, to bring the money in, and and surely that can't go on. So when we're talking about um, making this industry more democratic in terms of putting the tools in the hands of people who maybe have inklings of talent, maybe have something that, that they can bring to the equation where in the past they wouldn't have had the skill sets or, or the opportunity to learn the skill sets because it was such an expensive thing to get into shooting film and having it developed and, and so on. Is, is digital going to make a difference here? And are we maybe on, on the cusp of, of a revolution when it comes to films and looking at the likes of... Uh, uh, the way that things are streamed online, the way things are are now posted direct online from from new filmmakers on sites like Vimeo and so on, is is, is that just a romantic view, or or is that something that that could move the industry forward? I, I think Phil, I tell you, I tell you where it has made a gigantic difference, gigantic. And it just suddenly occurred to me. We're going to talk about it again in a minute, but um, TV production, TV production has totally been revolutionized by digital filmmaking digital film digital capture when you look at tv production in the uk uh 10 15 20 years ago it was pretty ropey you were shot on videotape in a studio maybe about on the location they might use 16 millimeter film bbc used to do that a lot look bloody awful uh, america was not so bad they used to use 35 mil quite a lot of the time so it had better production values but nowadays some of the tv stuff that you see for example game of thrones which has been a massive hit for um hbo Really beautiful production values, really cinematic look to it. Um, so, so TV has has totally been revolutionised in the last ten or fifteen years by by the by the fact that it's now relatively cheaper, although maybe not <laughs> movie production, but certainly in TV production you can get more bang for your buck than you ever could before. Um, whether whether we'll get quality uh, sort of independent features or, or amateur features or features being made with the equipment because it, because it's more d- democratic. As I don't know, it's necessarily the case. As I think as Matt said, you know, you might get lots of rubbish and the odd gem here and there. Because um, at the end of the day, it's not you know whether you've got a camera, have you got a story, can you act, <laughs> you know, can you shoot it, can you light it. I mean, there's so many other things. I mean, at the end of the day, it always seems to me I've got equipment here I could shoot a film with. But you know, you need a screenplay, you need some kind of good idea, you need decent actors. You know, if anyone's ever been in front of a camera, knows how incredibly hard it actually is to act naturally with a camera pointing at you. So, I mean, you can have the cheap cameras and all the technology in the world. Doesn't mean say you're going to make any good, a decent film. But I do think the television definitely, and also because of the way that movies have gone, because of the explosion of budgets, we've said this before in previous podcasts. You know, you can't take any risks. You you've got to get a PG-13 rating. You've got to hit a bigger demographic as you possibly can because you desperately need to make your money back. Um, so no one's taking any risks. No one's doing anything that's challenging or, or, or adult in nature, except, again, on TV. Again, HBO. 
They, they, their stuff looks great. They are fantastic writers. Really, really good talent comes to HBO. Good production values. They make adult fare. I mean, Game of Thrones, you know, let's be honest about it. it it's a fantasy film, but it's fairly graphic in terms of its sexual content and violence and swearing. Um, you wouldn't get that. You would never get that in a movie. You would never get a film full of dragons and stuff and then, and, you know, loads of naked birds. So um, that's, that's, again, an indication of how things have changed. Uh, and thank God the people like the BBC, Channel 4, HBO, Showtime, and all the other, you know, um, TV companies are producing quality content for us to watch and upping the um, the production values. What is the, what is the um, the cost per episode of of Game of Thrones? It's um, I think it's about ten million dollars an episode. Yeah, so I mean, that's as you, as you were saying earlier, which is small, which is tiny for a for a movie that would be an independent, low budget feature, but. Um, Obviously, they, they have certain savings because they're using the same cast over and over again and that kind of stuff. But they do have up the budget for certain. So in season two, there's there's the Battle of Black, uh, was it Blackwater Bay? Um, they up the budget. That's the one that um, Neil Marshall shot. And they up the budget for that one because they knew they had to do a big battle scene. It still wasn't anywhere near as epic as you'd see on, say, Lord of the Rings or something like that. But um, for a TV production, and I've seen the trailer for season three, and once again, it looks like they've up as it's become more and more successful because it's, it's obviously very popular on HBO. It's sold really, really well in terms of Blu-ray and, HD and DVD sales. Um, and it's also the most illegally downloaded show in the world as well, fortunately <laughs> for HBO, but I suppose it shows it's popular. Um, so they've up the budget with each progressive season. So in season one, there's a big battle and you don't see it. Someone gets knocked out, wakes up, the battle's over. <laughs> in season two, they show the battle. In season three, I think they've got, you know, dragons and you've got uh, uh, big, I've seen huge crowd scenes in the, in the trailer. So clearly they are upping the budget with each successive season because they can afford to. Um, but, you know, it's, 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 it's heartening to see you know, studios or TV companies like that prepared to put the money where the mouth is and being rewarded with success, which is which is also important, of course, ultimately. Yeah, I mean, I was watching. I mean, you you say obviously about Game of Thrones. I was watching Doctor Who that was on just just last week. And, an example. And again, you know, that's that's delivered now. It's got a five point one sound. It looks absolutely stunning. Compare that to to the things to the to the series they were even making sort of five or six years ago. And it, there's just no comparison in terms of the production values. I'm not saying the stories are necessarily any better, but the, but the production values behind it. And that, that's obviously because just how well it sells. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and again, it's, that's, that's good to see, isn't it? That if you put the effort in, you're being awarded with, um, with success, both in terms of, you know, sales and uh, things like BBC America, I guess helps. Yeah. I mean, there was, again, there was an interesting point. So going back to side by side, that, that was made that the the different techniques that some directors use when they're when they're shooting movies. Um, one was saying that you know there's so many movies now which which are made and almost written in the in the edit suite. So much footage is shot, and it's almost like right, we've got a rough idea of what we're going to do. Let's make a movie out of it. And of course, that's going to be far more expensive than than sort of polling up with a, a quite carefully written storyboard where you know what angles you're going to be shooting from. You may be shooting each scene two or three times with a single camera, so you've just got a single camera crew but there's so many now i mean you look at ridley scott he was using anything up to seven cameras at one point on quite a lot of prometheus i don't know how many peter jackson was using at any one point on the hobbit I mean, obviously he wasn't using all 48 but i guess again there was what probably 12 p 
pairs of cameras being used on some scenes. So there's, you just think that the budget it must take technically to do that, let alone then sit down with all that footage and trawl through and start editing that together. It must make the edit process so much longer. And therefore, that's they're go, therefore going to impact on the, the production costs because if you've got all that footage that you've then cut together, you've then got to color uh, match it all. You've got to, if you've shot different scenes or different parts of that scenes on different days, there's probably quite significant differences between what one camera shot and another. So it's all got to be rebalanced. So do you think maybe that's going to have a, an effect on some of these costs? Well, I mean, obviously that's that's now where the money is. I think if, if you go back 10, 20 years, the main money was spent on the film stock and having all that chemical process and everything else added to it. That It was a huge amount of money and, and it's even more expensive now because um, there's so little being made on film now that, that these services are charging more and, and all the rest of it. And I think moving into the digital workflow, I think where you're making the savings in terms of um, the camera technology and you know everything's saved digitally to hard drive and all the rest of it, then it has to impact on uh, on the the post production side of things. So you're moving from the movie all the way where you cut the film by hand and obviously there was all the damage that could be done at that stage and 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 so on. Um, so you're now in a cleaner environment, but then you got to think. Um, the skill sets of the editing staff. You've then got to get a colour corrector. Uh, you you got to then uh, grade the film. You've then got to do your five one or seven one mix. There's still a lot of that exists from from the old days, but it's all moved into digital now. You would think it would save money, but it seems to cost more for some reason, and uh, <laughs> that has to be just down to time and and personnel because I can't see how else that that costs money. I think another thing you've got to bear in mind with film also, and I know we haven't really touched on this yet, uh, is the is the distribution to cinemas as well. The, the, the cost of sending out, I think somebody said, I think the cost of sending out five or six movies on 35mm roughly equates replacing that projector with a digital projector. Um, it, the, the costs are really that close these days. So, yeah, I mean, it, regardless of whether or not you shoot on film, there's absolutely no question that... Uh, digital projection is the way forward. I mean, it just from a pure cost perspective, it, it just makes no sense to use film, uh, actual film for presentation because A, you've got to you know, make strike all the prints, then then you've got that they wear out. You know, I mean, no question that within the next couple of years, there won't be a, a, um, a an actual cinema, an actual movie f- film projector in a, in a cinema anywhere except for specialist places like the BFI or the NFT or something like that. It's going to be all digital within a couple of years. I mean, it isn't already pretty much in most cinemas. It's certainly going that way. One thing I hate, though, I don't know about you, is watching a 2D film in a 3D cinema on those metal eye screens. I think they just look awful, particularly if you're sitting in the wrong place and you're getting those, those sort of those oh, almost, oh. yeah, and those mirror-like reflections back off the projection. I hate that. If I was talking to a projectionist um, at a cinema that is still um, predominantly 35mm, but they have just installed their first digital projector, and his boss is absolutely refusing to have any 3D films installed, uh, 3D screens installed, unless they can have 2D screens that they can drop in place for 2D movies. Because he's been to it, he said, I've watched it, they're awful. He said, it's not what we're about. Sorry, I was just going to say, interestingly, I actually got to see half a film in digital and half a film in 35mm. It was one of the later Harry Potter films, I forget which. And they actually had a fault with the projector. So they stopped it about halfway through. They had a 35mm print. So we watched about the last 40 minutes, after about a 15-minute hiatus, in 35mm. 
and I hated it. It looked so much better in digital, and I kind of, I kind of felt I was almost selling out to say that. that it was sort of fairly early on, I guess. I mean, say so it was a few years ago before uh, the majority of the the smaller cinemas had had converted. These guys, they were just on the cusp. They had both formats there. The digital projector, I seem to remember we were, there was some fault that was getting progressively worse on it. So I said, right, we're going to cut that and watch the rest of it. And all of a sudden, we went from something that was pin sharp and oodles of contrast to something you thought, blimey, actually, 35mm projection is not that great. That, that's, you've, hit, you've actually made a very good point there, Matt, because uh, whilst you know, obviously film doesn't have an actual resolution in terms of pixels, it's roughly 5K, roughly. That's why I think the Red Epic shoots at 5k resolution to mimic film in that sense but i can guarantee you when you got to actually watching a release print of the cinema you were seeing nothing like that resolution you'd be lucky if you were getting 2k off that image so in fact you're dead right if you if you, most these days with, with 4k digital projection off a 4k you know master we are getting far better uh, image quality than we ever would have even with film projection because you know you, it may be if you had a pristine you know into positive off of, off of the original negative it would look great but in, in a in a sort in the in the bone ash in bath no chance absolutely no chance and it would have been knackered and been around the country five times uh yeah i i i, I mean whatever i might feel about film as, as a cap, capture medium uh give me digital projection any day of the week yeah, I totally agree. And I, the thing is, I think audiences, that's what they're expecting now. More and more people have got a, a flat screen TV at home. The chances are it's HD. It might not be set up very well, but again, they're used to that very clean, very fluid picture. They go to a cinema, if they're not seeing that, they're not liking it. And I think that kind of brings us back to the, the whole 48 frames thing. Is that going to become more common? Are people going to expect that fluidity of movement because that's what they're seeing at home? It depends on whether other filmmakers want to use it. To be honest. I haven't heard anybody apart from Jackson and Cameron even talking about shooting at a higher frame rate. Um, so, I don't know. I've seen lots of feedback from well-known filmmakers, directors of photography and so on. Um, yet to hear positive. The most interesting thing, for my money, in Side by Side, and this is something I don't think anyone's really thought about, but last month we were interviewing Michael Darity, who is the VP in charge of restoration at Universal Pictures. And they'd just done a major restoration of Schindler's List. Think about film. Once you've got that negative, as long as you store it correctly, you've got that for, for, for hundreds of years. There is no standardized way of archiving and storing digital um, movies shot digitally. You know, they, they put them on hard drives, but the hard drive can break. You know, I mean, how, how robust is this going to be going forward? That's will a very we lose? good point. Will we lose films? Will, will we lose? Will, maybe it would be a good thing if we lost Tack of the Clones because it's bloody awful. But, you know, <laughs> will, will, we, will, will we lose digitally captured films because something will go there? They'll, they'll make, what, what do they have? A fire? I don't know. I mean, obviously, you know, you could have a fire in, in, in lose the original negative of a film. But, you know, it, it, someone made, I think it was David Fincher said, you know, they, they don't know how to do this. And they might tell you it, but there is no standard and everything changes. And, you, you know, within a few years, you can't watch. I think he mentioned something about watching um, some of the older video for, you know, video formats and you can't watch them now. There's no machines made to play them on. So, you know, we, we actually, at least with film, it was exactly the same, 35 millimeter for a hundred years, you store that, you know, you take the negative, you store it well, somewhere cool and dry and it doesn't, you know, blow up if it's nitrate stock. Um, yeah, you've got that for hundreds and hundreds of years. You're absolutely right. And it's, and it's anything analog really, isn't it? If you think if you've got a, a two inch analog, uh, master tape or, um, you're still going to be able to extract that data because it's an analog format. If you've got a digital format that was recorded, you know, on an Atari ST or going back that far, 
how many how many people are going to have that ability to to play that back or to simply recreate something that's going to be able to take that data off and it, it's the same with anything digital unfortunately there's there's so much that's being lost there was stuff that i edited 15 years ago on some of the old uh, nonlinear suites that i have no chance at all of being able to play back now it's 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 gone you know i might have it sitting on a uh, a disc somewhere on a hard disk drive the chances of being able to get it even into some of the current editors are virtually nil to retrieve that and I'm probably going to have to go back to the, the the beta cam tape or something like that that I've got the original footage on or you know whatever it ended up on be it digi beta or beta sp or whatever it happens to be to view it and that again is is analog and I think there is going to be almost a lost generation of, of films of audio of all sorts of things that, that we are going to lose Pixar discovered that when they went to go and do the, the, the 3D conversions of Toy Story and Toy Story 2, particularly Toy Story, they realized suddenly they couldn't actually access the original files because the equipment didn't, you know, everything had changed so much in the previous so 10, 15 years that they suddenly thought, hang, hang on a minute, how, how do we actually get to these original <laughs> files in order to do, create, you know, the second camera view you know, and actually render it in 3D? Um, you know, they had to completely start from scratch, basically. Yeah, you've got to uh, reverse engineer what you've currently got to make it work with the older formats. It's, and it's, it's, it's a much less of a problem with analog. I mean, admittedly, there, are some, there is some stuff on some videos and on two-inch um, analog where they have copied it onto digital, but if you want to replay, I mean, there's like there's episodes of Dad's Army and things like that that were shot on two-inch video, and basically each each reel of that is is stored with its own head to make sure they can play it back. But that's relatively simple compared to trying to understand what's on a digital file and be able to decode that and turn it into something you can read. It's a massive issue, and as you say, you know, how long is it going to last? If it's on a hard drive, is that platter going to break? If it's on a CD-ROM, how long is that ink going to last? There's all these things, and unless you've got a, a rock solid digital way, and I don't think anybody as yet has come up with a, a rock solid digital archiving solution. I know, transfer it all into film and store the film. <laughs> yeah, well, it's funny enough you say that. That is exactly what's happening. People are still making thirty-five mil prints for that reason alone. Yeah. So it, it, it's all interesting stuff, um, and we started this conversation with the film side by side. Uh, it's a documentary by Keanu Reeves. Um, it's on Netflix US at the moment. Um, I, I've got a feeling it's still on limited release in the UK at some cinemas. Um, it is. But it will be coming to, uh, obviously, Blu-ray very soon, probably within the next few months, I would imagine, in the UK. Uh, if you can access Netflix US, then uh, go and watch it. It is a really interesting documentary. Uh, if you have uh, any interest in film and the process of how film uh, is made, then um, it, it will open your eyes because... Uh, I thought I knew quite a bit about the subject, but going in, I, I learnt quite a bit more about um, just the problems that surround the whole digital thing, which we've been discussing tonight. We were going to move on to the whole streaming thing, but we're going to leave that till next month. And I think it's a really interesting subject. So we want your comments. Um, do you watch Netflix or Love Film or any of the other streaming services? Uh, do you watch regularly? What do you think of the picture quality? Um, as a film fan, is it something that you would watch uh, a movie on? Would it just be on the TV or, or would you even chance it on the projector? Let us know what your thoughts are on streaming, uh, video, film and TV series because we're going to discuss that next month. Uh, but all I need to do now is thank Matt. Thank you very much. Thank you. And Steve. Cheers, Phil. And don't forget, we publish other podcasts during the month. Uh, on the 7th is the Movies Podcast, which you're listening to. On the 14th is the Games Podcast. And on the 21st is the Home Cinema Podcast. 
Don't forget, you can also follow us on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash avforums. Or if you want some behind-the-scenes uh, tweets, then why not follow us on Twitter? That's twitter.com uh, avforums. Or you can also send us an email if you have any thoughts on what we've discussed this evening or what's coming up next month, and that's podcast at avforums.com. This is Phil Hinton saying thanks for listening, and we'll catch you again next month. The AV Podcast was presented by Phil Hinton. Original music by Andrew Bassett and Richard Cosgrove. The AV Podcast was mixed and produced by Phil Hinton, and the senior producer was Stuart Wright. All content, including sound clips and music, is copyright material and featured for promotional use only. The AV Podcast is copyright M2M Limited.